we are getting back into our series on 1 Corinthians. And as you can see, on Sundays, we come together for worship, to study the scriptures, to minister to one another, to receive power so that we can go out and be the church during the week. And during the week, we have over 25 groups that are meeting in people's homes, different times, different places, so that you can experience community. Let me just see a wave of who is in one of the groups and you're actually meeting new people, having a good time connecting. Let me just see. And we are, we're just getting these launched, so we're a few weeks in and we are excited. Stories are coming in of people uh, experiencing healing, people experiencing new relationships, new connections. It's a wonderful thing. So 1 Corinthians, some of you may wonder, now, hey, why are we skipping to chapter eight? Let me explain. We've had kids in here, and we would be, if we were working through it chronologically and in a linear way, we would be in 1 Corinthians seven today and next week. But there is some adult material in 1 Corinthians seven. And so we will bump that to the next few weeks and we'll be talking about marriage and sexuality and singleness over the next few weeks. But I, I wanna be able to do that without um, any encumbrance at all. And so today we're skipping ahead, is that all right with you? And then we'll go back and pick up with chapter seven. So today we're gonna do 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to, 13, 1 to 13, and it's Christian freedom. That's what we're gonna look at. And I just want to say, we were singing about this. We are absolutely freed in the Holy Spirit through the love of God in Christ. We are free people, 100%, more free than we realize. I think it really takes us a lifetime to realize how free we are in the Lord Jesus. But Paul is going to talk about in this passage that our freedom has to be used with a view to other people that your freedom, my freedom is used to build other people up. And that's the whole point of chapter eight here. I wanna give a little bit of historical context so it makes sense. This is a rather strange passage in some ways. We, we can't necessarily identify with the idea of meat being offered to idols and that that would be an issue in the church, right? We have potlucks and barbecues here, but we don't deal with this issue. In the ancient world, in the first century, there were temples all over ancient Greece. In the city of Corinth, this cosmopolitan city that I've mentioned, a little bit Las Vegas, a little bit New York, a little bit Los Angeles, there was one temple in particular called the Temple of Asclepius. And it was, well, I'm gonna put an image up here, and then we're gonna read the passage in a moment. Can you put that image of the temple here. This is an artist's rendition of the temple of Asclepius, the god of healing. And what would happen here, you can see in this image, sick people would come into this temple and sacrifices would be offered. So the priests would come out and people would bring money and the, the priest would offer a sacrifice to this rather ominous looking God, Asclepius, who was looking on the people. And then adjoined to this temple, if you were to walk around the side of this temple, and we know this because archeologists have uncovered it, there's a courtyard and there's something like a restaurant. And so they were very practical people. They would take the meat that was offered up to this idol and then they would walk out and they would serve it in something like an ancient restaurant and people would gather together and eat the meat that was offered to 
this god Asclepius. And this one was right in the middle of Corinth, and so Paul is addressing the church with this in mind. Now we know, I've mentioned before, in chapter six, he says other things went on at this temple. And so I mentioned there were prostitutes. There were things going on besides just worship and the desire to receive healing and feasting. It was a pretty raunchy sight. And so Paul is bringing this word in chapter eight to the people of Corinth, and he's trying to disentangle them from this whole system. Make sense? And I want us to just sit with this for a moment, because oftentimes this, we talk about meat offered to idols, and who cares, but it really, it's, Paul is dealing with something that's religious and social and cultural, and he's trying to draw the people out of it. It's very, very serious. And many people are going back into it for social reasons. And so Paul is laying this out and he's talking about freedom in Christ and how to build other people up and how to actually be the alternative temple here. You see what's going on in this temple? It's no good. And so Paul invites them to be the alternative temple. So let's read this chapter 1 through 13 and then we'll make some comments about Christian freedom. Paul says this, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. There'll be a slide up here. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not for everyone, however, who has this knowledge, since some have come, become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause for their falling, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. So Paul is laying out three things here about using your Christian freedom. And the first one is he's going to talk about true knowledge in verses one to three. I know that was a rather long passage, but we're going to unpack it a little bit. Paul's going to talk about what true knowledge is. And in that first line there, he's saying, now concerning food sacrificed to idols. And then if you notice, 
in your text, you can see it on the slide, some of the quotes have quotation marks around them. We are listening in to a phone conversation. Paul is talking with them, and it's like we're only hearing the conversation from Paul's side. But that really is what this letter is about. It's like an ancient conversation that they're having. And so Paul is actually quoting them at different times. So those quotation marks, that's the church at Corinth. That's some of the leaders at Corinth making their point. And Paul is saying, I'm going to address these things point by point. And there are about four or five of them in here. So that's what Paul is is doing here. And he's pointing this out in verse one, all of us possess knowledge. And then Paul responds, how? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so Paul is really putting his finger on the nerve in this passage right here. The Corinthian church was influenced by their culture. They loved knowledge so much that they had temples devoted to gods and goddesses of knowledge. They worshiped it. So this is what Paul is is dealing with here. And can't blame them the early Greco-Roman philosophical tradition that emerged among them, Plato and others, they looked at the human condition and they said, the main problem is you just don't know enough. You don't have adequate knowledge. You need to know things more clearly. You need to use your reason, your intellect more clearly, and you can reason your way out of the human problem. That is what Paul is dealing with. And the Corinthian church is influenced by that. Does that make sense? So Paul is coming in and saying, knowledge is a wonderful thing, but love triumphs over knowledge. You guys are know-it-alls, basically. And what Paul says is, people in the church don't need know-it-all brains, they need humble hearts. And so when we address this issue, humble yourselves before one another. Get in touch with your heart. More knowledge is not the answer here. Humility in your hearts, treating one another with respect. That is the answer. And Paul is gonna go on in different places in the letter and say, you know what? Plato and the philosophical tradition, as helpful as that is, they don't touch the human problem. The human problem is sin and pride in the human heart. And the only answer to that is the love of God, the grace of God, the cross of Jesus. So Paul has his hands full in this chapter. If you look at the very end of that first section there, at verse two and three, Paul again is saying, too much knowledge, too much focus on this will puff you up and fill you with arrogance toward one another. Love will build one another up. And then he begins to transition. Look at what he says here. Anyone who loves God is known by him. So he's readjusting their thinking. Can you see it? And he's saying, I want you to lift your eyes up toward the Father. Move out of your brain and your mind and look to God. That is the adjustment that needs to take place. And he's going to say, anyone who loves God is known by him. So what he's doing is engaging their hearts and getting the church to think, ah, I'm known by God. I'm loved by God. God has chosen me. Therefore, I can love others. Paul is doing something very subtle here, but very important, readjusting them. He's trying to get them under that waterfall we talk about here, the love of God. And he's trying to get them to position themselves under that 
waterfall of God's love. So the first thing he's doing here is he's saying true knowledge is actually love. True knowledge is rooted in the love of God. A second thing that he does here is found in verses four through six. And he's going to talk about the true God, the true revelation of God in the face of these false gods. And he's going to do some things, some very nuanced arguing here, but I think what's most important in this passage is to see, this is the heart of the chapter, and it's the revelation of God. It's the revelation of the Lord Jesus, and we're gonna visit that. Now, Paul does mention in here that there are idols, and he basically says the idols are nothing. They're fabricated deities. They're empty. They're marble, perhaps gold, maybe a little bit of wood there, just like the Old Testament prophetic tradition. They are nothing. But Paul's gonna come back to this issue because it's so important in chapter 10, and he's going to say, but demons actually come and use them like containers or mediums through which to deceive people. So it's important you hear me on that. Idols are nothing. There's nothing powerful. That statue that we saw of Asclepius is nothing. There's nothing there. The people are petitioning and reaching out to a block an object of marble, that is it. But Paul does say that there's something that the enemy uses in that context, so he's trying to get them to think through this. And this is something they had grown up in, spend decades in this kind of culture, this kind of system where you're going to the temple, you're engaging in sexual behavior, you're engaging in feasting and drunkenness, these kinds of things. So Paul is drawing them out in the way that he draws them out. Look at this, church. He says, the people of Corinth have many gods, many lords, but look at verse six. Yet for us, there is one God. And so being the good Jewish apostle that he is here, he's calling them back to what was revealed in the book of Deuteronomy. There's no greater prayer than Deuteronomy six. Someone tell me, how does that start? Deuteronomy six. Here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There's only one Lord. Jesus references this. Paul references this. So he's reminding them, hey church, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a monotheist. There's one God. God has revealed this to our ancient fathers and mothers. One God. And look at what he says here. This is beautiful. I've been pondering this all week. One God And then what does he say? He's a father. The transcendent creator God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a father. And he gets this from Jesus. Jesus all through the gospels. He got heat for this, but he would call the transcendent God of Israel, Abba. And so... Paul is reminding the church at Corinth, the transcendent God of Israel is your Abba, is your father, is your daddy. Beautiful revelation. And Paul knows that if he can get the church to understand this a little bit, it's going to take root in their hearts and they're going to be ravished by the love of God. Beautiful what Paul is doing here. And then look what he says about the father. He says, in this revelation of God as Father, we know that from him come all things. 
Paul is saying here. He's the creator of all things. Not Zeus, not Apollos, not these other Greco-Roman gods, but the God of Israel, your father, from whom all things emanate. He creates and all things exist. He is your father. And then look at what he says. He says, you exist for him. Can I share something rather geeky here? Is this all right? This actually was an early church creed. You can see it. Doesn't it kind of ring like a song here? There is one God, the Father, and then there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. The early church would have sung this. It's almost like early church poetry here. And so they would have memorized it. One God, the Father, one Lord, Jesus Christ. And so this is an early example of an early church song. Some of the early church fathers meditated on this and they came up with this picture called Exitus Reditus. Let's say that together. Say Exitus Reditus. What in the world does Exitus Reditus mean? There's one scholar named Thomas Aquinas who devoted his whole life to studying passages like this. He said, what Paul is saying right here is that everything all of creation, all of humanity comes out of God. It comes, it exits him. But then throughout history, as history unfolds, there will be a return that occurs. Reditus, a return of all that the Father has made through the Son is returning to him. And so what Paul is saying here is you exist from him, and for him. And think about it. You were on a journey back to the creator. Get your life together. You will stand before him. You will give account for all that he's done in your life. Prepare yourself to return to him so that it can be a loving union, a union of love, rather than standing before him in judgment, giving account. I think it's a beautiful picture. I don't know about you, but these are concepts that oftentimes we wouldn't think about. Exodus, all that God has made throughout history is flowing out and it's returning to him in love and mercy. Is that beautiful? I think it's a beautiful image. And then he talks about here, not only is this a monotheistic view, one God, the holy God of Israel, but it's a messianic monotheism. Man, I'm laying those terms out there. Messianic monotheism. And so what Paul is saying here is that, yes, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and you exist for him, but there's also one at his side who's always been there, the Lord Jesus. And God created through him. And you are recreated through him. So what Paul is laying out here is a beautiful, stunning vision of God the Father and God the Son. Do you see it? And what happens is when you hold a vision like this, the love of God, the salvation of God through his Son, the Lord Jesus, the others pale in comparison. The other gods are nothing. They're weak. They're impotent. There's no love there. There's duty, there's obligation. And so Paul is enticing the church at Corinth out of this through a revelation of God. It's really the heart of what's happening here. The true God, the Holy Trinity, 
A third thing that Paul is doing in this passage is he's talking about true freedom because they had some ideas of freedom and they were misconstrued. They were abusing their freedom. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying your behavior, your identity, who you are, the way you act, the way you move through the world is rooted in your knowledge of God. This is the basis for all Christian ethics. All Christian moral behavior is not this. Grit my teeth. Be good. Oh, I've got to put my brother or sister first before me. I must. No, 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 no. Paul is inviting the church into the essence, the beauty of Christian ethics flows out of who God is. It's stunning. And he's inviting them. Get under the revelation of this and it will change your life. And church, we're committed to this at Our Lord's. We want to be a God-centered, God-intoxicated group of people. We already are, but I think the Lord wants to plunge us deeper into that. We want to be God-centered like this. I don't know about you, but the idea of gritting my teeth and doing things out of duty works for about 30 seconds. But if I have the revelation of God operating in my heart, you're my father. You have saved me. You're recreating me through your son. How could I not love you? And it tenderizes my heart, purifies my heart, renews me. And therefore, it makes it easier to love other people and put them before me. Would you agree? So the third thing that Paul is doing here is talking about true freedom. Now, in this section, it would take some time to really unpack it. I just want to point out a few things, a few elements of Paul's argument. And he makes several points here. The first thing is he's responding to their statements. Look at 7 through 13. You can see once again, they're talking about food not bringing us close to God and these various things. Do you want to know bottom line what they're doing here? They're trying to justify their actions. And they're trying to argue with Paul and say it's not that big a deal if we want to go to the temple. Food really does not matter. And Paul agrees with them. But he says, church, grow up. God's calling you to something higher and something deeper, and it's called love. So yes, you would be permitted to go back and actually eat meat that would be offered at a restaurant as long as you're not engaging in the practice that went with it. But Paul is calling them to a higher ethic. Do you see that? So he's responding to their arguments. And he's saying, secondly, don't abuse your liberty and your freedom in such a way that causes a fellow Christian to stumble. And then thirdly, he's saying here, the principle of love is paramount. And he closes the whole section here. What does he say in verse 13? He said, if food causes one of my brothers or sisters to stumble, I will never eat meat. If there's anything served anywhere in Corinth that's associated with this scene here, I won't do it. I love other people. Even though I'm free, I love my brothers and sisters so much that I won't eat it. You see it? What Paul is doing here? Now, again, we may say this is just so far removed from us. 
how in the world can we identify with what's going on there in the first century? And I would agree. I do think there are certain things to glean from this passage. In the first one, Paul uses the word conscience, doesn't he? Look at verse seven, toward the end of verse seven, and he talks about conscience. And this is one of those concepts. Just listen to me for a minute here. We don't talk much about this. And I am telling you, if we're going to have more and more new believers join the church, teaching like this becomes really important. When's the last time you had someone explain from the scriptures what conscience is? I can't remember the last time. This passage was challenging me this week to even think, what is conscience? What in the world does that mean? So Paul is tuning the church in to the idea of conscience. And I would suggest that it means moral compass. That when you become a Christian, you're created in the image of God, but God gives you an internal moral compass so that you can make decisions. And you can make decisions that are right for yourself, and write for others around you, and it can guide you through life. Now, is it perfect? No. But you have to grow in it. And Paul will make it clear in the letter that the way that you grow is through immersing your mind and your heart in Scripture. That is what gets that compass nice and functioning. Have the Word of God washing over your mind, renewing your mind, and purifying your heart. That is it. So if you're today, you want to know, how do I get my moral compass aligned and functioning properly? It's a fresh invitation to immerse yourself in Scripture. That's it. Paul will also add that it means a a keen listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. So it's Scripture, it's the Word of God, but it's also learning to follow the person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit to be guided by the Holy Spirit. I can remember when my conscience was awakened at 17. My compass was broken. It was covered in mud, and it was a little bent, and it was not tuned to true north. I'm not sure where it was tuned. But the Lord awakened my conscience at 17, and I began to be aware of what's right and what's wrong. I knew it intuitively, and it was a little bit twisted, and, but the Lord began to renew and change and wash over the, the, the guilt. My conscience had stuff piled up on it, and the Lord was stripping that away, and you know what? He's still doing it. He's going to do it till the day I die. But I learned some lesson about having a clear conscience before God. I also learned how to overconfess sin. As my conscience awakened, I would go to people and ask their forgiveness and make more of a mess out of the situation. I went and apologized and asked forgiveness to people, and they were like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You're very weird. This is strange. But I did it out of a good heart. But I think there's maturity. Do you hear me in this? Paul is calling the church into having a conscience in tune with the Word of God and in tune with the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we do the best we can. What I am not saying, church, I'm not inviting you into religious obligation and duty. I am not 
at all. I'm inviting you into intimacy with the person of Jesus, intimacy with the Holy Spirit. That is the essence of a moral compass here, and we grow in it. As I was reading this passage and meditating on it, I heard a story of a pastor in Los Angeles, and he was recounting the story of a a new believer at their church in LA. And this man was fresh out of alcoholism. He had worked the AA program. And this man was invited to the home of someone else. And they were serving wine and they were drinking and they kind of egged him on a little bit. They urged him to go ahead and share some wine even though his sobriety was new and the dude got drunk. And it led to a slip back into his lifestyle, his previous lifestyle. And so this gentleman that I was listening to was talking about how a passage like this could seem outdated and outmoded, but how might we use our liberty in a way that doesn't cause someone else to stumble? How might we have our conscience lead us in a way that puts other people before us? Now, immediately, some of you are going, oh, I had some over to my house and I served them drinks, I served wine, I served beer. Get over it. I am not inviting you into legalism. Do you hear me on that, friends? I am not at all. I am simply trying to point out here this principle of conscience and stumbling block and being sensitive to other brothers and sisters. That's it. You come to my house, typically I'm gonna serve some wine. My beer is not very good, but my wine is better. But there are times when I may not do that because I sense this is not the moment. This is not the person. I've got to be sensitive to them. So that you understand what I'm saying here, I remember going to Dublin, Ireland, and I was about 23 years old, and I didn't drink. So I'm going to flip this illustration in another direction. I went to a pub with a group from the Dublin Vineyard Church, and man, I was the only one out of about 20 who wouldn't drink a pint. And man, I was resisting. Probably felt a little holy inside too. Had nothing to do with sobriety. It was self-righteousness. And the pastor pulled me aside and said, you need to drink a pint. And I said, well, I, I, I don't want to do that. And he said, I think it's just, you should do it. So what did I do? I drank a pint of Guinness. Didn't like it very much, but it, see, the inverse was true. I was actually causing some problem in that social context, and he saw in me some immaturity, put his arm around me. His name was Sean, and he was basically calling me to grow up a little bit, just have a pint with us. It's part of what we do here. So you are not hearing me say that you can't drink and that you have to be religious around other people about your drinking. Do you hear me on this? I think it's very nuanced and it requires sensitivity to the indwelling Holy Spirit to use our freedom in a way that builds up other people, in a way that honors them and respects them. So this passage here about Christian freedom building up others speaks to true knowledge rooted in the love of God, the true God, monotheistic messianism, messianic monotheism, that there is one God and one Lord, Jesus, and then we use our freedom in a true way, respecting one another as God's children. Let's pray.